Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here with Jennifer Lodine Chaffee, Assistant Professor of English at Montana State University Billings, to talk about her new book, A Weak Woman in a Strong Battle, out this year, 2022, with the University of Alabama Press. Hello, Jennifer, and welcome to the program. Hello, Yana. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So how are things in Billings today? Is it winter yet? No, but it's a nice fall day. Yeah, Billings is a beautiful place. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, sure. Yeah, Montana has its it, it has its moments for sure, yeah? Yeah. Brilliant. We are in uh, the dark, rainy days of fall. It is very Dutch outside, which is <laughs> pretty much what I say every day from now until March. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It could, you know what, we all have our crosses to bear. And if mine is uh, you know, a few days of rain, I'll take it. Um, all right. So I'm so excited to you to, to, I'm so excited to talk to you about this book today. Um, so many things to get into. But the first thing is I really want to figure out how it fits in your intellectual trajectory. Um, so based on timing, I'm guessing it's your dissertation. No, actually, it's not. Okay. Um, the project I started after my dissertation. All right. So tell me how you came to this. Um, it actually probably started between the year of my third and fourth grade schooling. <laughs> okay. Uh, my dad, I was a very precocious reader and really interested in history, and he bought me a book called The Two Queen Anne's uh, by a woman whose last name was Prohl. And it was about the wives of Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn and Anne of Cleves. And I was just fascinated with Tudor history starting at that age. So um, my undergrad, I did an undergrad thesis that was actually on Anne Boleyn's religious views and how much of a Protestant she was or did she maintain Catholic viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually did one of my master's uh, theses on executions in Tudor and Stuart, England. But that was kind of a broad overview. Mm-hmm. Um, 
during my PhD, I worked on a dissertation that was all about mortality and positive aspects of how people thought about mortality and how actually they could construct a positive posthumous identity. So after I was done with that and had published a few articles, I decided to tackle this, mostly because um, perhaps as a woman, I am very interested in women's history and how women are represented. And I had read a lot of articles on executions, books on executions in the early modern period. And I thought, nobody's really covering women. Mm -hmm. There were a a few books and one particular article by uh, the scholar Francis Dolan that talked about women, but nobody had just focused on women. And I thought, I want to do this because I was fascinated with how people approach death and how executions took place. And I thought, there's got to be different expectations for women. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I've been working on this probably since around 2017 when I started and um, along the way, you know, did a lot of work kind of on violence and executions. And I I should note that I'm really not that morbid of a person. (laughs) If you knew me, but you kind of get down this academic path and you end up studying the same sorts of things. So, yeah. No, absolutely. I, yeah, I was, I wondered if I would meet someone with like black lipstick and, you know, a studded collar, but no, you not, not at all. Uh, not, don't, I don't see any goth emo situation at all going on here. Oh, um, yeah, it's interesting. So I think actually the idea, um, probably the idea of studying executions or the idea that that's even possible is probably of interest to our to our listeners they probably have not expected that so like why executions of all things what i mean what what why do you want to know this and how can you know about it well one thing it is somewhat hard to know the real historical situations that went on because everything we read is mediated um Mm -hmm. you know you have authors from different political spectrums and religious spectrums writing about these individuals undergoing execution. But why I thought it's important is it's usually a very public event. It's not something that we today, you know, public executions take place, at least in the West, behind doors if this is something that occurs. But it was something that many people would have actually watched. And there was a framework that they would be able to understand these executions and think through them. And what did they mean on a personal level? What did they mean on a spiritual level? Um, And I also, I just find in general that the final moments of a person's life, at least in the early modern period, are framed as being highly important. It's going to tell us a lot about who that person was, what their spiritual Mm -hmm. state was, Um, how they thought even about maybe their nation or family members. And so I found it was sort of, for many people, this kind of penultimate moment, your last chance to kind of have your say or enact something that was important to you. And that's really Mm -hmm. why I found it so fascinating to study. So it's the idea that these are these are happening in public, right? So they they and they're meant for the edification of the public too, right? Yes. 
So, but then there are these very personal things. So it seems like an excellent place to get at that interaction. Of- yeah. And some of the individuals I felt like really, especially I felt women more than men, because often their sphere was more domestic for definitely a lot of middle or lower class women. So they actually would be mentioning family members and more domestic concerns at their executions Mm -hmm. if their words are recorded. And then again, just to note, we don't know how accurate a lot of the accounts are. Um, So let's talk about these. Like one of, I'm interested in the sources you use broadly. So um, let's, first of all, can you tell us about your execution narratives? That's one of your primary sources, right? What are those like? Um, So there's a wide range. And so I looked at um, hagiographies or accounts of martyrs and how Mm. they encountered death. Um, There are accounts in chronicles. Um, a lot of historical documents that were written by contemporaries at that time in England. Um, Then I looked at ballads, um, which were printed as actually songs to be sung later. And they're often in the first person voice of the individual. And then I also looked at dramas as well. Uh, Some dramas were actually retelling historical events, sometimes with a definite slant or bias. Um, In addition, we have all kinds of crime and news pamphlets. And those people often also had specific agendas. Some of them were written by individuals called visitors, or actually ministers sent to help people prepare for their executions. Um, And their goal was usually to bring the person to repentance, but their goal was often conservative in the fact that they wanted to uphold the the sentence and uphold the law and the government at the same time. Um, And I also found poetry as well. Uh, Specific poems about executions, which I was not expecting to find that one. Death poems are interesting, but I guess it suits. I mean, if you're writing, if there's, if there can be a song about someone's last words, why not a poem? Yeah, and I found some that I didn't include, but the one that was about a woman by this poet, Edward May, who's a a pretty obscure poet, but he actually talked about this woman in a very erotic and I found very disturbing way. Um, He imagined himself as the flame. She was a husband murderer being burned at the stake. And he imagined going kind of up her body and her response to the flames being kind of sexual. Um, it, It really was a very disturbing piece for me to read. And I was not expecting that at all. But there were quite a few accounts that displayed women as being kind of objectified, even in this moment of death. Um, And I think that really speaks to this continual desire to control women's bodies. So a lot of this literature, it tells the story, but then it seems there's also this idea that we're going to bring them back together. Like we'll bring these people to the fold and rectify. Like if the idea is that this punishment is supposed to kind of warn the rest of the community done, but then also reconcile the sinner, the criminal as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And there's this sense that a lot of these narratives are, uh, they draw their inspiration from the Ars Moriendi, which is a medieval and early modern texts and woodcuts that people read and consulted. And it was kind of a guidebook to prepare mm-hmm. yourself for death. And part of that guidebook, it stressed repairing your relationships with individuals in your community mm-hmm. and with God. And also not giving in to temptation to despair or to turn from God, that in your final moments, you really need to be focused on God, the afterlife, um, being, you know, right with God in your final moments. So this was kind of a huge part. So everybody at the executions, they would usually give what was called a last dying speech, which I know it sounds redundant, but that's how it's referred to in many of the pamphlets. So they would give this talk and usually they would almost all say the same things over and over. I've read thousands of them now. And people would say, we're gathered here to watch my death. Thank you for coming. Please pray for me. Um, I pray that God would assist me in my final moments. They would confess to either the sin that they were condemned for, or they would just confess to kind of an everyman sin. So I'm not guilty of this particular thing that I'm being executed for, but I am a guilty human being. I have sinned in my life. So there was this ritual that they went through. And at first it seemed just very formulaic. I mean, why is everybody saying the same thing over and over? But what I found when I looked more closely is that there were small instances where it would change. Um, And for a lot of the, the women, what I noticed is for many women who were presenting themselves as being really repentant and wanting to get right with God and their families, it kind of gave them this opportunity to offer offer a very small social critique. So some of them would say things like, be really careful about the man you decide to marry, or parents, don't marry off your daughters at a really young age to an elderly man. Let young people have a say in their marriage. Or sometimes it even would stress Mm. that my husband was abusive to me. And I found this really interesting um, that there's kind of this moment where people, if they're perceived as being repentant and following this formula correctly, they could actually slip in some things um, that were kind of personal to them. Interesting. And so making this point. So, but I mean, so these, there are women who are taking, there's women who are taking advantage of this time to like settle, settle scores perhaps, or at least make a, a, this social critique. And then, but I mean, there, there are these words, but equally important, it feels from reading this, that women's bodies are really important, right? And yes. yeah. So talk to me about that. Yeah. So what I found is that in so many accounts of women and much more than the accounts of men that I read about, the body becomes a focus and they're looking at women's uh, facial expressions, the way that their cheeks might look, the way they're comporting themselves. And what I found is that the women's body is this kind of text that's being read for signs of either 
innocence, repentance, or guilt. And the way the women became depicted was if you were a woman who was deemed to be either repentant or innocent of the crime, you were usually depicted as being a beautiful woman with a rosy complexion who um, your countenance showed that you were actually repentant or at peace with God. And if you were a woman who was not repentant, you were deviant or at the scaffold, you refused to repent. You were described as maybe ugly, deformed in some way. Um, we have, a, of course, accounts of witches and witches' teats and witches' marks on the body. And those were seen as exterior signs of something that's going on inside these women that's like, you know, a cancer almost that's their personality or their spiritual state that's going to be displayed on the exterior body. Um, and it's hard to know, like in a lot of these accounts, you even have conflicting mm -hmm. versions of what these women look like or how they comported themselves based on the bias of the individual writing about them. And Mary, Queen of Scots, I thought was a fascinating case because um, some Catholic supporters described her as this very beautiful woman, um, upright, brave, going to her execution, whereas some who were Protestants and believed that she was really involved in a plot to kill Queen Elizabeth I depicted her as looking elderly, um, wearing this wig, um, her head kind of falling off in this grisly aftermath of her execution. So I feel like authors that were writing about these women played into this perception that the inner person was somehow displayed by the outer body. And mm -hmm. they would, you know, depict these women as incredibly deformed or ugly that they saw as unrepentant or wicked. Sure. Yeah. And that's this kind of early modern consumption, right? That like the external form demonstrates what's inside and that's, yeah. and it, and it should too, right? That's why you're supposed to wear certain kinds of clothing and, you know, the sins of the mother can result in a deformed baby like this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this is a thing. Um, but I want to, like, there's more, I want to go into the body a little bit more, but I wanted to stop here and say, um, you had mentioned that we we have trouble trusting our sources, right? And you can't we can't really know. And you mentioned that they're mediated, so these you know these are things people are writing down these dying declarations. Um, but here's another, and then you notice this is another way we can't trust our sources is that eyewitnesses are describing completely different situations for their own gain. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I think a lot of the accounts really reflect the uh, Protestant Catholic divide in England doing, during the Tudor and Stuart period. So if you read accounts of individuals um, who were executed, martyrs, for instance, um, if it's a Protestant martyr, they're going to be depicted in this brave, um, stoic, sort of way and how they encounter death. Whereas if you look at them from the Catholic side, they're often depicted as fearful, um, you know, ungodly, not expressing themselves well, not being able to maybe even speak. So it's this huge difference of how people are constructing. And I should note too that 
um, you do have like people that maybe wouldn't have the kind of vantage point to observe the ritual, or you have individuals who are writing based on the account of somebody else. So it's really hard to tell, you know, what did these women actually mm-hmm. say? And the most suspect ones are probably the ballads that are usually written in first person, sometimes even before the person was executed. Sure. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of problems uh, from a historical viewpoint of getting to the actual truth. Sure. Well, and it seems like there's a script. I mean, you compare them with hagiography, where we have a very clear script of how it's supposed to go. So what do you do as an historian when you work with a source like this? Well, the hopes that I have is to find multiple different sources to kind of piece things together, but that is often... Um, impossible. There are sometimes legal records where you could see the actual case. Um, there might be competing accounts. And sometimes there's a drama written about a particular historical mm-hmm. event. So you can kind of compare. But what I found in the end is actually that I wasn't trying to assess exactly how accurate they were. What I was trying to assess is what does this tell us about the culture mm-hmm. in general? You know, how did people throughout uh, early modern England perceive of women and of this moment of execution? And what can we learn, even if we know these are completely fictional accounts? There's obviously something going on here about how people think and what they're looking for and why they keep repeating these same sort of kind of formulaic narratives. Sure. So then it doesn't matter what's actually said. What matters is the script, is the trope, is the way it's going to be understood, right? Yeah, definitely. And so what did you get as an ideal? Like, what is the ideal? How How is, if I were to go to my death this afternoon, what should I do? How, how should I behave? <laughs> yeah. So definitely as a woman, one thing they looked for is that you were displaying proper deference and modesty. So as a woman, you would want to position yourself, you know, under the authority of your husband. Um, You would actually maybe look down, physically look down, perhaps kneel at points. You'd want to show what they considered sincere contrition and repentance, which actually was sometimes demonstrated by sighs, crying, um, but also sometimes by smiling at the scaffold. There's many mentions of women Mm -hmm. smiling because they're looking forward to actually meeting God or going to the afterlife in a state of peace. Um, And then you would be given a chance to speak and you'd want to go through the the normal things that you're supposed to go through, you know, repenting. um, But... Often, if it's an ideal situation, you'd be given a little more time to speak, and then you could almost act as a preacher to the gathered crowd. And so you would give them a didactic message. You know, you need to get right with your husband. Don't be a scold. Don't be a shrew. Um, Don't let your anger overcome you. Uh, Be subservient. Obey your husband. And then if it was that, you know, you had been kind of accepted by the gathered crowd and people are recording your words, you might actually be able to slip in a little bit of, and by the way, please pick your husband wisely. 
This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, good. So then um, the other thing that I'm sure our listeners, most many of our listeners don't know, is just how awful execution could be. I mean, I think, first of all, we do it behind closed doors and we say cruel and unusual, but we don't really have any clue what happens there, right? Public execution in the early modern period is not pretty. Yeah, not at all. And the ways that women were punished were often harsher than men. So we have, for instance, petty treason, which is defined as either a woman killing her husband, a servant killing his or her master. And in these cases, it's seen as a small treason because you are rebelling against your head. Um, so, you know, treason would be rebelling against the monarch. But in these cases, you know, women are rebelling against their husbands. And men who murdered their wives, they would be hanged, um, which granted that is not a nice, nice death, but it would be would be a little bit less horrific than being burned at the stake. Um, and so these women would be um, led to the stake, tied or chained to the stake, all the um you know, kindling would be placed around the stake, and then it would take a long time to die, and your body would often burst. There is an account uh, of a woman who was martyred for being a Protestant as well, because that was also the punishment uh, for heretics being burned at the stake, and she actually was heavily pregnant, and her child um, actually just came out of her womb. Her womb basically exploded in the fire. And it was a horrific moment. Um, we have accounts of people's arms bursting open. Very, very disturbing way to die. Yeah. And beheading, which was the punishment um, for high treason and for elite women, um, some of the accounts, the women, it was just, you know, one clean stroke, but some of them multiple strokes of an ax before they were, it, it just seems like such a fearful thing to have happen to you. And, and to, and to know exactly if you wanted to, you could know exactly what that was going to look like, right? You could have watched it before you, you know, you, you've read the things you've heard the ballads, you know, what's coming. Um, I'm surprised that pregnant women were executed. <sighs> Yeah. So usually what could happen is if you were a woman who was pregnant, um, you could claim your belly, which meant I'm pregnant. Please have a group of matrons look at me. And it would usually mean that their execution would be delayed until after they gave birth. But 
um, there are accounts, at least of a couple of martyrs who were definitely executed while they were pregnant. And in this woman's case, heavily, heavily pregnant. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was shown by um, John Fox, who wrote Acts and Monument, the main right. book. I mean, it was shown as like, this is proof of the evil of our Catholic leaders at this time, that they would do this to this woman. Yeah, I've sat next to that book in so many a home, but I have never, uh, never opened it. <laughs> All right. It's a disturbing book. <laughs> I think I'm glad, actually. I don't know how little Yana would have dealt with that. Good. Um, I find this, I don't know what my, I've, I'm having an emotional response um, and I want to have an intellectual response, but I'm not sure what that is either to this idea that women's bodies, which are this locus for male control their whole lives, then become this ultimate locus for like the, in the last moments of their life, become this locus for control for men and institutions. Yeah, and I should note, um, and this is something I found surprising, is that some women's bodies were even used posthumously. Um, we definitely have the anatomy theaters that were becoming more prevalent during this time where public dissections were happening. So there were some women's bodies who were going to be used for medical science and sort of entertainment as well. But we also have um, at least one woman's head that was placed on a pike, another woman whose skeleton uh, was placed in the Barber Surgeon's Hall and remained there for about 200 years. So there's this kind of post-death use of some of these women's bodies as well. Yeah, in interesting. Um, and I suppose, you know, having forfeited by being a criminal, there we go. Yeah. So um, your, what's your time frame here? When you go, when do you, when do you begin and when do you stop? Um, I begin um, in about 1530 and end in 1660. Um, and the reasoning for that mostly has to do with the Protestant reformations, because that ushered in a time of many executions. And we have also an expansion of treason laws that takes place during the reigns of the Tudors, particularly Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. Um, so that meant that more people were actually executed. And it became this time, too, when the accounts became more prevalent. We don't in the medieval period, accounts are usually pretty cursory and they don't usually give the final words or discuss people's bodies in depth. Whereas once you get to the early modern period, there are just pamphlets almost every year about people's executions. Um, and there's a lot of upper class people as mm -hmm. well who are being executed. And the reason I ended in 1660 is that things really changed um, once the Stuarts came back and the focus was no longer as much on these individual executions. There still are ballads and crime pamphlets being written, but you get, for instance, um, the Newgate calendar and you get sort of these mass accounts of executions where you almost lose the individual. So I wanted to really focus on these individual women and their particular circumstances. And this is, for me, the best period when you can see mm -hmm. what's actually happening. Sure. Um, 
And I, that's that's an historian. That's an interesting thing as an historian, right? I mean, the first thing is we have to have sources. So like, here's this good pile of sources. But there's also if you if there's a good pile of sources, it's probably because something's going on, right? Like there's a reason to look. Yeah, and I mean, multiple yeah. things are going on in the you know the late 16th, early 17th century, and really throughout the 16th century, the Protestant mm-hmm. Reformations. I mean, that's just huge and impacts all of Europe. Um, and there's also you know because of these expansions of treason laws, there's also um, some new laws about infanticide as well mm-hmm. um, that was really targeting unmarried women. Um, and you could be accused of infanticide if you were a woman who gave birth in a secretive manner and didn't have another woman with you. So your child could legitimately be stillborn, but you might be executed for infanticide mm-hmm. because you had nobody to prove and you weren't married. So it's a mm-hmm. very, yeah. Kind of, so you're already suspect. Yeah. Fascinating. All right. So I'm curious, um, you know, I, I've got some ideas, but I'd like to hear what you think is what you're really like, what is your greatest contribution here? Like what, what are you doing for scholarship with this work? So the scholars who did focus on women before, I felt like didn't really connect all the dots. I mean, there are some great books that are about, you know, news pamphlets and women, um, women who murder their husbands. There's, you know, one really strong article, but I felt like all of them kind of did different things. And one thing that they really left out was the focus on the body. And I feel like that's probably my most unique contribution to this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, Frances Dolan, who I I love her work, I should note, I've read multiple books by her, um, very gifted scholar and a great writer. But she, in her article that was in the 90s about women in execution, argued that women were allowed to speak at the scaffold because they actually left their bodies out of these accounts, that their bodies were not really part of the account. So they became like this... Mm -hmm sexless being who was speaking at the the scaffold. And the more I read, the more I felt that's not true. There's all these pieces that actually focus on women and even woodcuts that show women's um, chests and breasts as being very prominent and kind of sexualized in some of the drawings, you know, and artwork about execution. And the more that I, you know, looked at this, the more I noticed how many people would say, you know, what a beautiful woman going to the scaffold or look at her complexion or look at these signs. And then I also thought, okay, there's all these accounts of witches too, and examining their bodies afterwards, or they have a goiter and that's like a sign that they're, you know, having some kind of deal with the devil. And I felt like that that's not true. So the more that I looked at things, the more I found the body to be a prominent part, especially for women. Um, But the other thing that I feel that I do is um, a few different scholars had kind of mentioned, how can women have agency or sort of personhood at the Mm -hmm. scaffold? How do their stories not get lost in this whole narrative? And what I found is that um, these authors are actually either allowing them to give these critiques in the written accounts or possibly the women themselves are offering these critiques. 
And some scholars had mentioned this before, but I felt like, well, how do they, how are they able to actually give these critiques? And what I found is that it's the women who are presenting themselves as modest and feminine and repentant. And they're these kind of, you know, they're following the stereotypes of what it means to be a woman in this time, a proper good woman. And if you did that, you were actually able to speak and have a say and maybe offer, you know, advice Mm -hmm. to individuals. Right. So, you know, this uh, women's lives, women's bodies are contested until the very end. This idea of who has agency over them. Yeah. And I've always, I find that a lot of these ideas, I think, are still at play today in the way that women are depicted or perceived. Um, As women, I feel like I often have more of a say if I am more stereotypically feminine. And I think this is very unfair um, to many um, to many women that were expected to behave in a very particular way. But there's definitely, you know, hiring practices, the way political figures who are women are sometimes criticized by not behaving in a feminine manner. So I think that this way that women are perceived is still part of our culture today. Yeah, absolutely. No one's ever, uh, yeah, no one's ever told a man that you get more flies with honey, right? That doesn't, that doesn't happen. Um, yeah. And obviously we can think about particularly notable, uh, female women politicians and like female stars and the way criminals, you know, like how women who commit crimes are perceived just saying criminals is part of it. Yeah, fascinating. So it sounds like this was really fun. I mean, and a little disturbing. It was an enjoyable project to research. And it's very interdisciplinary in scope. Um, I actually was a former practicing public historian as well. uh, Before I went on to get my advanced degrees in literature. So I was able, I felt like, to really combine sort of a literary lens and a historical lens when completing this project. So that that part was really fun for me because usually I feel like I have to be kind of one or the other. And this was a project that combined my interests. All right. I have taken up so much of your time already, so I just have one more question if I can which is the, it's an easy one. What's next? What are you working on now? Um, well, I have a lot of extra material from this particular piece. So I do have an article coming out actually about the execution of a dog in the late 17th century um, that didn't really fit in the book. Um, I'm working on a piece about compassion at the gallows because that was something I didn't really get to focus on. And so right now I'm looking into uh, both accounts of men and women, but how people watching might've reacted sympathetically or pityingly or in a more caring manner. Um, I think there's a perception that people were very cold in the early modern period or desensitized. And I feel like that's not necessarily true, that there's a varied response. Um, from the crowd or people observing these things. Um, And then I've also turned to looking more at crime pamphlets um, and sort of the early modern forensics that are going on when they find a murdered victim 
and how you might piece together um, the crime and who the perpetrator is. So that's an early project that I've started working on. So it sort of segues off of what I've been doing. Awesome. Uh, okay. Yep. Brilliant. That sounds wonderful. I'm really excited. I am really curious about the uh, the dog. I got to tell you, I'm really looking forward to reading about this dog. All right, Jennifer, thank you so much.